All right, folks, we are joined this week by Marty Stone, uh, analyst of all things bass fishing. Um, watches watches more live footage of people fishing than probably anyone in the country, I would say, right? <laughs> I agree with that statement. All righty. Well, anyway, we are going to, I guess, dive in. I think we have a pretty broad range of stuff to talk about today because we're in the middle of the tournament season and we can talk about anything. But mm-hmm. we'll start with the All-American. Um Emil Wagner got the win on Lake Hartwell a couple of weeks ago. It was a really good tournament. A couple of kind of local guys ran out ahead of the pack. Uh, they had an edge when it came to the herring. But I guess, what did you what did you think of this? Had you ever made an All-American? I mean, I know you've done a lot in your career. <laughs> in a brief career. Yeah, I, yes. The answer, quick answer to that question is yes. And, and I tell people all the time, I, I was very fortunate. When I fish, I made Forestwood Cup, made multiple of those, multiple Bassmaster Classic, one All-American. I believe it was in 95. There was some blonde-headed, loud, obnoxious punk kid from California, too, that made it named Skeet Reese. Um, man, he wanted to be the star of the show, and I kind of resented that. And then I had some other guys that I fished against all those years as well. But if I had any one tournament that I could repeat, do over again, I would pick the All-American. The Classics were special, my first one especially. Uh, the Forestwood Cups were neat. I got to go one time head-to-head with Kevin Van Dam when we were doing that bracket-style deal. That was fun. Pushed him to the limit, knocked me out, but that's that's no exception to that. But the All-American was my first taste of a big-time tournament in that atmosphere. You're in the league boat. You're, you've got people hauling you to the ramp. Um, you've got press everywhere. You had the defending champion come speak, which at that time was Stephen Browning. I mean, it was the first time I truly got to feel what a big-time tournament was. And I can't tell you where the first Forestwood Cup I qualified was at. I can't tell you where the first Bassmaster Classic I qualified for. But I can tell you I made the Redman All-American. Back then it was Redman All-American at the Arkansas River. That's truly how near and dear to my heart it is. And, and the guys that I get to cover on a regular basis – whether it's the Bass Pro Tour or the Tackle Warehouse Invitational, so many of them on that resume have checked that box, All-American qualifier. And I, and that to me, that that is a huge stepping stone in the right direction. Jeremy Lawyer, for instance, he's six-time qualifier. Cole Floyd, youngest angler on tour, he's a red man All-American qualifier. Jacob Wheeler, the youngest to ever win the All-American. So the story, the rich storied history of that, and then you look back at, Man, Clunes won at Clark, Wendell's won at Shaw, Grigsby's won it. You look back at the winners of that, and then you can go back and go, man, there's some hammer, there's some legends in our sport that have won that event. So for Mill Wagner to be able to win it, one, it's a milestone. And I, and I watched a little bit the fourth day. He was probably the only one on stage that wasn't overwhelmed by Chris Jones. I mean, completely <laughs> in shock with the wow and who's next and all the cool things that Chris does. And he kind of showed me a glimpse of a young man that I think that's ready to take a couple more steps. And the neat thing this year is, and we got this right. I know some of the guys on the Bass Pro Tour might not like it, but I do. I've been I've been a fan of this for four years. We're going to let the All-American qualifier come join us at the 2024 Red Crest because he auto-qualifies into that event, which is the right thing. And now he's going to get a dose of not only a big-time event, but when you look around at that field, you're talking about hammers. So, man, it was cool. It really was. Yeah, like, you know, he uh, 
he got to fish against Wiggins. Actually, in the regional last fall, Wiggins beat him by like two ounces on Smith Lake. At, and then at Smith Lake, Emil should get some kind of trophy for being that close to Wiggins at Smith Lake. Yeah, no, right, right there, it's like, wow, it's, that's doing something. And then he right. turned around and he got him at Hartwell. Um, yeah, and, and that was man, he had to come from behind too. It wasn't a day one lead all the way through. And and, and I say the top four, especially the top three, they all probably had fish on that could win that event. And um, that was a cooker because you're right when those top three, that was a late Hartwell all-star event you look at the three that ended up first second third man that that field was stacked for that lake yeah all all from the bulldog division all of them were like they're like guys who i guess live just about halfway between lanier and hartwell you know and they go back and forth and back and forth and all they do is chase spotted bass that chase herring and they were they were dialed they they knew what they were doing they knew how to fish it i thought it was interesting I don't know if they were actually the three youngest guys in the field, but there was definitely an advantage to being a little bit younger, probably a little mm-hmm. bit better shape, a little faster moving, like talking to the camera guys there. These guys were up and down and up and down all day onto the next, onto the next. And it was like, it, it was, a, it was a cool tournament, uh, but definitely an exhausting one for those guys, I think. What a lot of people don't realize is for most of those guys, it was the first time they truly got to experience a camera operator. I remember after the event, we have a young angler here in our area named Tyler Trent, who I think is it, he who is an outstanding angler in the future is really bright. And when I was talking to Tyler, he said one of the things that he wasn't kind of prepared for was the fact that the operator was in the boat. And now not only are these young anglers up and down all the time, they're up and down all the time with additional people. You got an observer in the boat. You got a camera yeah. operator in the boat. You got a lot of moving parts. Where you had a, they had a co-angler in the boat with them. So there's a lot of moving parts to that. That not only do you have to be in shape, but now you really have to strategically plan your ups and downs because you're not only moving yourself, but you're moving that co-angler. You're moving the camera operator. You're moving the chase boat. There was a lot of moving parts that our guys on the Bash Pro Tour and a lot of our guys on Tackle Warehouse the Invitational, they're used to. This was the first time they got the experience of full capacity, three persons, all our gear and what it takes to make live. And and that's an interesting dynamic. And you look at those guys in the top, man, they handled it. And they handled it well. Yeah, no, they, they did. Especially, you know, the guys at the top, they all did well. Uh, Wagner... You know, he had a really, really tough morning. Like, he lost a lot of fish. And it was definitely he had the opportunity to spin out, you know? And he didn't. And that's, like, that's really cool. Um, Man, that's a separator, too. In young anglers, it's it's easy for them to really have the self-doubt because they haven't been there and done that. It's easy to second-guess. And... As anglers become older, they realize that's a part of the process. Kevin Van Dam, to me, is the best in the business at losing the fish and getting over it. Wheeler is starting to get really good at it. And guys at that upper level, and and not meaning that they're good at losing fish, the few that they ever lose, here's the difference in the mindset. And I remember seeing this several times with Kevin over the years, watching him. He lose a four or five pounder and it wouldn't be the spin out, it would be they've got troubles now. 
Now I know how to generate a bigger bite and I will land the next 10 that I, but the, the fish made the mistake of showing me how to generate a bigger bite. Wheeler's getting really good at that where you very rarely see a big fish loss. And, and I don't care what level you're at, you're going to lose a few. So for a meal to be able to handle that pressure, overcome that, that shows there's a little bit of maturity beyond his years because you've been around this game just like I have a long time. That's part of it. How to handle a lost, a key, a big lost fish. Anybody can lose a two-pounder, and it's okay. But when you start losing those three to five pluses, now we're going to find out the character and the mental makeup of that particular angler and anglers that can flush it and go, here's what it takes to generate that bite. Now let's go repeat it. Those are the ones that have long-term sustainability success. Do uh, do you think that the top guys or like the guys leading AOI are 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 they losing fish at a lower rate than other folks, or do you think there's a sort of set rate that all pro anglers are losing fish at, and we don't we don't need to really worry about it? Like how how much do you feel like just your landing percentage plays into a year, and then? Are there things guys are doing different or better on any given year? Like, yeah, that's, this that's year really, so... is is odd. Like, landing every fish this year, and there's a reason behind it, or is he landing every fish this year and it's luck? You know. Yeah, I'd say in our upper echelon, I'll, I'll give you the the hook to land ratio somewhere around that ninety five percent, and I truly do believe that. Um, and and I'm going to take it a couple steps further with the guys on the Bass Pro Tour when I'm looking over my angle of the year. Uh, Dakota Becker, Jones Jr., Evers, those the guys up echelon, and and all those guys at the top level. I'd say a 95% hook to land ratio. But here is the difference: when we first started the Bass Pro Tour, you know, one of the rules we have over there is no nets. In, in most upper echelon tournament trails, that's part of it. And for an angler to go from a netting situation to a no netting situation is a big, it's big, big deal, especially like this last event that we were at up at Cayuga where they're dealing with all these small mouth emphasis on very small mouth and how do you land a five pounder. But what I've noticed over the years is the ones that are very successful, it's not only the hook to land ratio, but it's the hook in what I do until he gets next to the boat. You can go back and look at old footage, 2019, 2020, man, a lot of them were a hot mess. They were hitting those fish. They were bringing them in hot. They were used to bringing them into a situation where the next movement would have been put a net up under and we'll deal with the chaos later. Now you're watching guys on the hook to a very calm sense of urgency, but not a sense of panic. And when that fish gets to the boat, the fish is tired out. The angler has seen where the hook's at. And... Now they understand how to fight it. Now, I've, I've still got a few out there on the Bass Pro Tour that, that is a hot mess. And unfortunately for them, they're not doing really well because you bring that fish in, especially those bigger fish. You bring them in too soon, too hot at a bad angle. Now we're going to be down to a 50-50 hook to land ratio. So a guy like Ott and others, and you watch Ott, it, his temperament, and I say this about Jay Lee and I can say it about others, they have the perfect fishing temperament. I remember a couple of key fish Edwin Evers had on at Cayuga. It, they'd be around three different docks, posts, and they'd be over a beam, and 
it, it was just a, it was a Charlotte's Web situation, and they ease over there and they pull a little, give a little, pull a little, give a little, and then next thing you know, they've got the fish landed. There was no panic. We're an unseasoned person. The first instinct is pull until you can't pull no more, and the fish either comes out or things break off. It's a rarity for me to see my anglers on the Bass Pro Tour to ever break a fish once there's a hook and landing situation involved. And I think that's something that's involved. They've realized, man, we've got to, we got to slow this thing down. We've got to be calmer. We, there's got to be a method to how we fight these fish. And then once we get it next to the boat, man, you've done all the hard work. Don't blow it right there. It's a rarity that I see with the Bass Pro Tour anglers, a fish come unbuttoned at the boat. So when I'm talking to and watching lower levels and they continuously talk about lost fish, if they're being honest with themselves, there was moments or a moment of of panic more times than not that caused that fish to be lost. If you got the right hook, you got the right rod and you've generated the bite, it's a hook and a fishing line. I mean, those fish shouldn't be coming off. Now, every now and then it happens, but if it's happened repetitively during the day, you need to sit down and ask yourself, do I have the right hook? Do I have the right cadence? Do I have the right rod? Do I have the right gear ratio? Do I have the right line? And what am I doing to cause this continuous loss of fish? My good ones at the top level do not continue to lose fish. Instead, they ask the tough questions and they are brutally honest with themselves. I should own that one. And every now and then I see one of our guys lose fish and go, that was dumb or that was stupid. <laughs> they know, they, they know. And, and add to this again, going back to, they don't even have a net. So it is 10 times harder to land, especially these key and bigger fish next to the boat. I mean, you and I fun fished enough. We don't get a net. If I fished in this format, I would be the worst. I'd lose fish next to the boat and I end up with so many fish landing violations. I am the world's worst of swinging them in the boat, letting them hit the carpet. Brutal. I've had people in my little vents that I fish now look at me and go, are you going to call the fish landing violation or am I going to do it? (laughs) What we're asking our guys to do is very difficult, but they have learned it's hard enough to get a bite. It's a very fine line between success and failure. Don't screw it up once it gets next to the boat. Yeah, no, it makes makes sense. We're kind of there now, but what what do you think about AOI on the BPT side of things because Ott has, I mean, he's got a 28 point lead. It's a pretty, it's kind of a pretty big gap. I I guess with two events left at the same time, these two events, you know, St. Clair and then Saginaw Bay. I mean, he's got some guys who catch him really good up North in the rear view. What, what, what do you think? I think it's getting ready to get really interesting. I think Ott had a he had a 42-point lead going into Cayuga. Man, he dodged a couple bullets, made a couple last-minute charges just to get the knockout round. Because if he hadn't been a knockout round, the points race would have got a lot tighter. Um, Ott will self-admit to you, one of his few lakes that he has had issues with is St. Clair. He has a hard time finding the style that fits him and the lake that goes together. Not saying that he can't catch smallmouth. I mean, he's Ott Depot. He can catch any fish that swims. Mm-hmm. But we all know Otter loves to be up a river, up a creek, somewhere off the beaten path a little bit. But he is also very comfortable. One of the few that loves to fish shallow, but is very comfortable out there deep. And last year when we were at St. Clair, or a couple years ago, when Michael Neal did what he did, 
there was a couple of anglers, Wesley Strader, Andy Morgan, come to mind that had pretty good events and not had an okay event with the largemouth. Now that we're back to the best five, I just don't know if that's possible. I think the number one key we got to watch at St. Clair, can Ott make the knockout round? If he can, he can breathe a sigh of relief. He'll at least be in the mix for AOI going into that last event at, at um, Saginaw. But, but, here's the but. You look at the guys behind him, Dakota Ebert, Matt Becker, Jones Jr., Evers, Wheeler, Chris Lane. He's won on St. Clair before. Brent Ayler, Tock, Avena. Man, all of these guys have had successful St. Clair. And when I go to Dakota, Becker, Jones Jr., Evers, Wheeler, they're some of the best smallmouth fishermen we've got on tour. Yeah. So Ott's going to feel the pressure. He is going to feel the pressure of that score tracker. He's going to feel the pressure of the event. I'm going to be curious to see, does Ott attack it his way, meaning primarily focusing on largemouth? And you and I both know in and around St. Clair, backwater areas, rivers, further run south, there are some really good largemouth in that place. Can it, on the best five fish, keep up with, I think if you're going to go with the smallmouth, you're going to be 20 pounds plus every day. That's just how good that fisheries is. And then when we get to Saginaw Bay, man, that's the biggest unknown that I have seen in a while. There is very few, if any of our anglers, that's got hardly any seat time on that place. And that place, from what I'm being told, is really good smallmouth. It's really good largemouth. It's big. It can get extremely bumpy. Man, whoever comes out with this AOY, they're going to have earned it. Um, Selfishly, I I am kind of cheering for Ott. I know he's been runner-up on that particular title three different occasions, third several times. If if an angler is deserving and due, it's him. But I can also make probably that same case for everybody that's below him and watch out. Wheeler now has gotten himself back into the race. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Wheeler, you kind of just assume he's going to finish the year with a pair of top fives. Um, but who do you think, do you think Ott is the favorite still with the gap yeah. he's got? Or do you feel like if you had to put money on someone, it's a, a Becker, Dakota? Are you going down and saying, hey, Wheeler's just going to go full Wheeler and do this? What do you, what do you think? If you would have asked me that question after this event and Ott still had a 22-28 point lead, I would say Ott's the favorite. We're going to St. Clair. He's had some documented issues, some self-admitted issues on that. Um, if he can survive it, I'll still say he's the favorite. But if you tell me I have to pick right now and put money down on it, I'm going to go uh, Ebert or Becker. I, I've, said, I've said from an event ago, when we were at Gunnersville and Becker's having a top 10 on a, on a lake, because Becker's told me his number one, he felt like biggest weakness was the TPA reservoirs. And now he's moved in, in down to Tennessee and he's gotten a lot better on these TVAs. And we're swinging up north and we're going to St. Clair and then we're going to a northern fisheries. I, I got to say Dakota and, and Becker right now kind of having a little bit of an advantage in that first day of qualifying which usually is just lets everybody go through the motions from production to anglers to everybody else this first day of qualifying is going to be a huge day for Defoe because you've been to St. Clair that is a lake if you get way behind you can't make up because everybody's catching Ott's going to have to hold his first two days of qualifying get to that knockout round 
and then to try to have a good finish because you know the guys below him. They're going to have good smallmouth events because every time we go up north, they do have good smallmouth events. But I think the key for Defoe, get to the knockout round, survive this tournament. Now, let's flip it a little bit too. Odd is more than capable, more than seasoned enough to be able to make an adjustment on a lake that he struggled at. Just because an angler historically struggles at a lake at his level doesn't mean he's going to continue to do so. He might go up there with a completely different game plan, focus on smallmouth, which he can and, and will catch, and then go out there and, and hang two 20-pound bags on it and then come out of there with a 40-point lead, and this conversation is completely irrelevant. Yeah. I, I don't – I have a hard time seeing I do, like, really badly in any of these next events just because he's – I think so good, you know, like I feel like the floor for Ott is really high at the same time, you know, if he finishes, if he makes the knockout round, that still might not be enough just considering the smallmouth acumen and the, frankly, the live scope acumen that's right up behind him. Um, you know, Dakota is skipping the invitational at the Potomac, which some guys in the points will really love so that he can go to Saginaw and, and, and pre-practice and look and idle. And like, that's a, I, I don't know if Ott's doing that. I guess he's probably been there before, but like, that's the kind of stuff that could end up really translating big. Um, I, yeah, I think I mean, that Saginaw event is going to be fascinating. Before we came Ott completely out last year at stage six, Cayuga, which he probably did a lot of this on the strength of largemouth. He finished 22nd. Stage 7, we were at Malax, Kind of an unknown for a lot of these guys. He finished 18th. Um, he is not a bad fisherman when we go on our northern swings. I mean, at, at all. Oh, yeah. Um, so he's going to have to make adjustments on that lake because he will tell you point blank, that is a lake for whatever reason he just has not jived with. But if anyone can make that, but that with Dakota doing what he's doing, skipping that invitational, I mean, Dakota was fit. No, let's see where he was eighth in the points overall in tackle warehouse invitational. There's good news and bad news for a lot of people. That's going to open up another spot for tackle warehouse invitational. It's a non-Bash Pro Tour guy to get to the Bash Pro Tour because there's no way he'll stay in the top 10 now with not making that. Um, And, and the bad news is he's really putting a lot of emphasis on not fishing another event, but he's putting a lot of emphasis on trying to finish out the Bass Pro Tour and possibly win that AOY, which he was fourth last year, I believe. So he's already, his rookie season, he's already come close to tasting that one time. Yeah, I think we're all big Dakota fans here. How how good do you think he is? Whew, that's a really Really good question, and I will answer it this way. I don't know, you don't know, and more importantly, Dakota doesn't know. He really doesn't. He has yet to figure out how good he can be. And, and I say that with all sincerity. And and when we say an angler is good, I mean, we've got to kind of, we've got to put it in perspective what good is. So here's what good looks like. There's been 14 Bass Pro Tour events. He's made the knockout round 11 times. He's made the top 10 seven times. 
He's made the top five six times. He's been runner-up three times. He's done all that in 14 events. Go back to seven top tens, 14 events, five top fives, 14 events, three-time runner-up in 14 events. And this year, at my last calculation, with this last tournament right now, he's pushing right at $400,000 in winnings. And at the start of the season, he'd only fished 115 national events. We don't know. How, how many other guys make the top 10 half the time? Do you have that stat on hand? Because it can't be many. <laughs> There's one. We, okay. Wheeler, Wheeler, we've had 39. Wheeler's participated in 39 Bash Pro Tour events. And, and, and this is what this, this is just absolutely amazing. Wheeler has fished in 39 Bass Pro Tour events. He's made the top 10 25 times. Now in 39 events, it, this is another one that just blows me away when you go back and because you, you start to run out of accolades for Jacob, but he's fished 39 events. He's made 35 knockout rounds. 35. By far. By far the furthest of anybody, even at the pace Dakota's on, if you if you did the multiplier and got the Dakota to, to the 39 events, he still wouldn't be on pace to make as many knockout rounds as Wheeler has done. Wheeler has made in 38 events 25 knockout rounds. That is the only one that is remotely close to that. Gosh. That's, uh, that, that's incredible stuff. I think that with Dakota... One, if you want to even like project, if you want to even imagine Dakota being even better than he already is, because obviously the stats say he's amazing, yep. you could say that he's younger in his career than the guys he's competing against. You know, Dakota, ha he has fished a lot, but, you know, when Jacob Wheeler started fishing on the Bass Pro Tour, he was fishing, and I'm not trying to make an argument that Dakota's better than Wheeler. I'm not there. I'm not there. <laughs> but, you know, he had been on the FLW Tour for years. He'd been on the Elite Series for years. Like, mm -hmm. he had already, you know, he'd already won a Forestwood Cup. Like, he, he was probably closer to the best part of his career than, theoretically, Dakota was when he started. Now... That said, we might be in the best part of Dakota's career. It certainly is hard to see it getting better, but, I mean, I don't it's really good. I don't even think we're close to the best part of Dakota or Wheeler's career. Uh, and and I'm, I want to preface that by saying this. When I, when I look back at the history of bass fishing, most of my really great anglers, and, and, and I think one of the words that we misuse in society, and especially in fishing a lot, is the word great. We, we want to label great, great. Now, there, on the Bass Pro Tour, there are some good anglers. There's some really good anglers. And there's quite a few great anglers. But I think we have to be careful how we throw the word great out there. But when I look back at the history of great anglers, the Hall of Famer guys, man, most of the, a lot of their best runs come between 36 and 45 in age. And because you're at a point at that point in your life where mentally you're probably some of the strongest that you're ever going to be, but you still have the capacity to learn. And physically, you still have some gas in the tank to be able to take everything you learn and to be able to execute it. So it gets to the point where they're working efficiently, effectively. They know when not to overwork. They know how to overwork and when that's applicable. 
I truly think an angler's best years in their life is that 35 to 45, 36 to 46 time frame. Because you look at even the great anglers, somewhere in that 48 to 52 range in their life, mentally they still know how to do it. Physically on these multi-day events, it just takes too good of a toll. It really takes too big of a toll on them. So I'll use that formula and tell you, I think Jacob's best years are way in front of him. I think Connell's best years are way in front of him. I think Michael Neal's best years are way in front of him. I think Dakota's best years are way, way in front of him. They haven't even started to show us how good they can be. And that that's scary. That's scary in a good way. I've, I've said a lot of times, especially on our Bass Pro Tour, our young anglers are so good at so young. The sustainability, then you throw a Jay Lee in there and, and just the, the list goes on and on. Our youth movement on the Bass Pro Tour is real and it's sustainable. And then the cool part of it, the majority of what's coming to us from the Tackle Warehouse Imitational is also young and getting younger. And those guys, like Dakota, still don't have a clue how good they can be, but they're starting to figure it out. And then you saying Dakota's going to Saginaw Bay. Man, when you've got youth, when you've got energy, and you match that with uh, a work ethic, that's when really special things happen. To me, when the young anglers, who normally are inconsistent at best, that's the, the fault of a young angler. But when young anglers stay hungry, they stay driven, they have the work ethic, they're putting in the time on the water. There is a correlation between time on the water and success. Man, they have a chance to be really good. You take all that. I look at the Wheelers and, and, and Connell's, Avenas, uh, Lee's, uh, all our great, Alton Jones Jr., who is, at one, until Cole Floyd got here, was the best, youngest angler on tour. You look at those, the talent that they've got, add the time on the water, add the work ethic in. Man, we've yet to see how good they can be. I really do believe that. Yeah, that's uh, it's definitely, it feels like there is a really, really strong class of upper 20s, low 30s guys right now. Uh, yeah. And, and I don't, I don't know if maybe I just didn't pay attention well enough for a few years or if maybe there was just a little bit of a lull but it seems like there's a group now of like young anglers who are making their mark and are do and are like poised to do so for a long time uh more maybe more than usual so it's it's cool i think out here on the bass pro tour what has happened well a lot of them we've watched them mature in front of our eyes now when jay lee got to us he'd already won two classics and been in running for angler of the year. I mean, he his ability exceeded his years by far. But I think in, in Jacob, you can make an argument, had a really nice resume. But a lot of the guys, Neil, Connell, uh, Dakota, I'm looking down my, my list here of of young ones. Um, Avena, definitely Avena. Um, I think Jacob Wall's got a high ceiling with him. Wiggins is another one that comes to mind. Man, when I'm looking at these guys – in, in what they've done of late, and Zach Burge, I'll throw him in that mix as well. I think they're maturing and in front of us, Jody. I think what we're watching is they got here, they were good, they still didn't realize how good, but because of the quality of talent they're fishing against every day, you either get better or you get left behind. And I think this, the thing, you didn't overlook anything, nor did I, 
nor could we project what the maturation process was going to look like for these guys. But man, now that we're starting to get a glimpse of it, it, there's the wow factor. There really is a wow factor to what they're doing day in and day out. Yeah. I I think birds is a good example on that. As far as the guy who's matured, because when he came up on the FLW tour and fishing Toyota series events, we had a very specific mold of what he was great at and he would, and he was great at it. You know, that guy could like, he could beat the pants off you in the dirt. And now you see him making cuts with a spinning rod in the middle of nowhere. And it's like, well, dang it. He can do everything. It's not like he just got lucky in Florida once. He just does it all now. And that's amazing, you know? I think Burge got off to a slow start this year. And and here's something that we don't talk about a lot. And and you and I, because we're so connected to this industry, we've seen it. I've seen it more so in the last two years, and I can remember in a long time, a lot of shakeups in the industry, good, bad, or indifferent, a lot of shakeups. Guys changing boats, guys changing motors, guys changing corporate sponsor, signature sponsor. And, man, there, there is a comfort level to knowing that that business is taken care of every year and you're, you're staying with the same people. But when anglers start making changes, and, and that's part of the business, that's part of the ecosystem that we go through. But I could list Burge and several others, new boat, new motor, new key sponsors. There is, and I I was one of those anglers. I I would make a switch if financially it made sense in in a heartbeat uh, because my number one rule when I was fishing was take care of my family. Um, But when anglers go through those situations, there's that added pressure to perform really well in a hurry so those sponsors can actually feel good about the investment they made. Now, when that happens, more times than not, the angler is putting 10 times more pressure on themselves than the sponsors. The fishermen are who they are because of the back of the player card. Zach Burge can have an off year. Everybody can have an off year. He is going to be good and really good and potentially great for a long period of time. But when you watch anglers like him get off to a slow start, you go, okay, what's the reasoning behind it? Is he not spending time on the water? Is he not, is he not doing his stuff? Pre- no, all that's there. So what else is going on? The, the, the part of the, we don't realize how hard and costly it is for these guys and the strain and toll it takes on the angler and the family. Man, for guys to make a living out here, a sustained living, that living comes in the form of mailbox money. It comes in the form of the endorsements on their shirts. No one. No one in this sport will make a sustained living right now in the way we designed it off of winnings. The winnings help. I always said if my winnings paid entry fees and taxes, I was good. If I could pay my entry fees and taxes, I was fine. But I made my living on sponsorship. And so do guys like Zach and others out here, especially on the Bass Pro Tour. So when they make significant sponsorship changes, and, man, they got their heart and soul invested in their equipment. And when they change, there's a little bit of getting used to it, period, whether it's two weeks, two months, or a year. I don't care what anybody says. There is a moment where it takes that angler a while to get used to everything about him that's new. Yeah, no, that that makes sense, uh, for sure. Um, On the, I don't know, we kind of talked AOI, so maybe we'll just transition to AOI on the invitational side of things. 
Because okay. there we've got, I don't even know if we have an AOI race now, but we have definitely a BPT race. <laughs> um, Ron Nelson has 777 points. Yep. He's, I haven't done the math, but he's like, I guess 30 some. 42 points ahead of Stefan. Of Matt Stefan. And yep. then you've got Villa, who's really right there, and it drops down. And then in eighth is Dakota, who will sort of mentally drop out of that top eight, which is what you yep. need to be in to make the Bass Pro Tour. What uh, what interests you about this point situation over there? Because it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting group of guys. It really is. And, and I'm, you know what? And I'm a Ron Nelson fan. Uh, class act, first and foremost. Great person. Really good angler. I mean, one rookie of the year and then backed that up with an AOI, qualified for the BPT. It just wasn't right in time for him in life. Didn't do it. Come back out here and is going to perform at a high level and, and potentially win the AOI. I think it would be good for our sport if Ron does. And, and, Man, I, I remember watching Ron for the first time when we did those FLW Super Tournaments. And, and I've watched him time and time again have days where it could just come apart. I mean, absolutely. I remember back when the FLW Super Tournaments, he was running Evanroo and he had some motor issues that we kind of kept off camera. And it was like, well, here goes the disaster. Here comes the bomb. Here comes the Ron Nelson's going to fall out of this and not win. And next thing you know, we get to Chris Jones. He's weighing in. And Ron's got five for 17 pounds. And it just all worked out. <laughs> it's just that's typical Ron Nelson. Now, I say that to say this. I'm not willing to hand him the AOI race, and here's why. At every one of these tackle warehouse imitations, if I'm not mistaken, we give out 200 points or 150. There's a large amount of points being exchanged for the winner at each event. Bass Pro Tour, we give zero to 80. Um, I think we're 200 points on the tackle warehouse imitations per event. So the next two events, there's potentially 400 points up to grab and he's got a 42-point lead. Now, he normally performs really well at the Potomac, but the Potomac is the Potomac, and it's a title fishery, and it has a mind and a mood of its own. Mm-hmm. I think he'll do just fine in that. I think Ron Nelson will hold on to that. But, man, you look at the people that are chasing him. Stefan's got a lot of seat time at the Potomac. Martin Villa, who I've gotten to know over the years, is a hammer on the James River because he lives right there, and he's darn good at the Potomac. Gray Buck, Pennsylvania angler, spent a lot of time on the Potomac. Michael Neal. Michael's had some top tens of recent at the Potomac. Yeah. Keith Carson, who I am a fan of. I am ready. Just give him the Bass Pro Tour invitation because that's a guy, when he gets there, he's going to make our league better, as all our anglers coming from the Tackle Warehouse Invitational usually do. Kobe Shrump, that's an interesting one there. That's a that's a journeyman. That's a guy who has grinded through the BFLs and the regional tournaments for the years and is finally having a really nice, solid national year. Fan of and, and hope it works out. And then you continue to go down that list. I think it's going to get shaken up a lot. I, I think who's going to go to the Bass Pro Tour has the potential to shake up. Um, I think Ron Nelson is in complete driver's seat of this AOI, and I think he fishes really well when pressure's on. I'm pulling for Ron, but I'm not ready to just say, let's go ahead and give him the trophy and say he's going to win the AOI, because I think we've got too many unknowns coming up. Yeah. I'll, I'll be really curious to see what Stefan does at the Potomac, because he's had some bad luck there one year. Yep. 
he, uh, I think his motor was blown for like all of practice and <laughs> resulted in a rough finish. Right. Um, he, at the same time, at the same time, even in years where stuff is theoretically not broken, he just hasn't had the results there. And it lines up with everything he should be good at. Yep. And if, if Stefan has a tough tournament, well, you know, maybe things open up a little bit. But, man, if Stefan has a really great tournament like he's been having all year, I, I, he might have missed a cut, but I don't think he has. Like, I, I think that he's a dangerous guy going into that final event on the Mississippi River. And, it's, and the Mississippi is a place where you can definitely slip up. You know, you can have some lock troubles. You can, you know, decide to concentrate on the wrong pool and have it go off in another pool. Like, that's a place that, as much as Ron is probably going to do well there, it's got it carries a little more inherent risk. I feel like than some of these other fisheries. So, I, I feel like a lot of it co- is going to come down to how well Stefan does in this Potomac event, as far as from an AOI perspective. You know, I think that those top three, really probably the top four, are barring some real disasters, probably feeling really good from a BPT standpoint at this point. Oh, I completely agree with that. I completely 100%. I mean, you can almost take that top four, and um, every one of them would make the league better. You did a podcast early in the year with, with Matt Stefan, and and I listened to that thing in its entirety, and I don't listen to all your podcasts entirely, <laughs> nor, nor do I go back and watch hardly any live Bash Pro Tour that I do, but I started listening to it, and then I was drawn into it, because you and I both know Stefan is a, a tremendous speaker. I hope he never gets into broadcasting, because he's he got has an incredible voice. voice. He does. He'd take my job tomorrow um, and be better at it. And But as I was listening to that, I heard a sense of maturity that you want to hear out of an angler that's been doing it this long. I also heard a degree of confidence that maybe has always been there, but it sounded like an angler that's been around the block a few times. And he was, and he realized the importance of, going to another level and the tackle warehouse invitationals is as tough as they are and as hard as they are to win man and, and there's really good anglers in there you can be still somewhat a little bit inconsistent in that league and have an okay year and the bass pro tour does not allow that it, it, it's just it's not gonna it's very few that's gonna stay inconsistent Stefan has not he's not been inconsistent i'd have to feel in my heart that He's already been down the Potomac. He's put in the extra leg work because I know he's done that at other events. But I think Villa is a really dangerous angler at the Potomac. Gray Buck, who probably should have been at the Bass Pro Tour two years ago, is rightfully going to get to us now if he can just hold the ship. I know Gray will do well at Potomac. He's had some decent finishes. And look, Michael Neal, let's don't overlook this. Had top tens at Potomac has got some seat time on the Mississippi River, some pretty good seat time. He is, until someone takes it from him, Still AOI. he is the defending AOI guy, and he's back-to-back AOIs, and he's sitting right there to be able to do something historically that only three other people have done. Now, I know people are going to go, well, the Tackle Warehouse Pro Circuit and Tackle Warehouse Imitation were two different circuits. Okay, whatever. 
he still won. It's still really cool. <laughs> yeah, and, and only Van Dam and Roland Martin have ever won 3-0-Ys in back-to-back-to-back fashion. So when you start putting yourself in those names, and, and I'll, I'll go there with Wheeler, too, on the Bass Pro Tour. If, if he wins it, he's back-to-back winner of the AOI, and now, because what he's done this past week, he's back in that race. So until we get to the last event, and mathematically, Wheeler or Neil are completely out of the AOI race. I'm not willing to overlook those guys either as being relevant in that. Yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be really curious to see how it shakes out. I definitely, I I think that I've, I've watched Ron Fish a lot. I have a hard time seeing him cough it up, but I, at the same time, it's a really good group that's right behind him. Um, and you're right about the inconsistency letting you still have a good year on the invitationals. I just like I literally just pulled it up because I wanted to I wanted to check. But uh you've got Drew Gill in seventeenth. He's got a triple digit finish. Uh right. you've got Ty Al in eleventh. He's got a triple digit finish. Mm-hmm. Like you can have a really, really good season and miss yeah. one there. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Completely agree with that. And that, that's normally what happens with guys coming from Tacuarez Invitational. I mean, they're good. Some of them are really good. Um, and the ones that are really, really good that have potential to be great, they normally get out of that top eight. Man, it's tough. You're talking about a 150 to 170-man field, and we're saying at the end of the year, we're bringing the top eight. And, oh, yeah, by the way, if there's any Bass Pro Tour guys up there like Michael Neal right now, we're only going to take the top seven. So, yeah. and – Here's what we've also seen, because this ecosystem works. It really does work. When they finally get to the Bash Pro Tour, these anglers have been through so many battles, and they've been through so many tournaments, and they've been through so many pressure situations. Staying in the top eight is not easy. They, and if they've been in the top eight, they've been in the con- consistent enough that at some point in time during the year they've had an ability to win a tournament and they have won a tournament. They've been through the pressure. When they get there, they're better prepared than ever. Just look at the guys this year that are competing. Spencer Sheffield, he's a rookie on the Bass Pro Tour, just past the million-dollar mark. Dakota Ebear, we talked about that resume, long and elite. I mean, the guys, when they show up, Jacob Wall is, is having a nice year, still young, still shows that little flash of inconsistency. Matt Becker, that was a rookie on the Bass Pro Tour that been through all the battles of the Tackle Warehouse Pro Circuits. And look what they're doing now. Now they're taking over the top spots. Not only are these guys, when they get to us from the Tackle Warehouse Invitation, because of the way we're structured, the ecosystem. And I'm going to add one more thing in there that most people I don't think think about. On our Tackle Warehouse Invitationals, when we're going through the season, we keep a TV element to it. So, Every day, we're, we're covering it on live. Me, JT, and Chad are up there babbling away like we always do. But here's something for the top performers. And the, the guys that we're talking about, we've had cameras in every one of their boats. We've got cameras in the boats. You've got chase boats. You've got the world. We talked about this at All-American. So they're living through all that pressure and additional pressure they've probably never been through. So when they get to the Bass Pro Tour and we have even more cameras in a smaller field, and the likelihood of a camera showing up is a lot higher, they're not rattled by it. Jody, you and I have been around this thing a long time. I have seen anglers the first time or the first couple of times they ever get a camera in a boat. Man, that's that's like putting horseshoes on a donkey. It doesn't 
fit and you can tell it. And then when they finally get comfortable with it, then it's just a part of the world. So the guys that come to us from the Tackle Warehouse Invitational, because we as a league have invested the time, energy, and effort to give that TV element to it, not only to help them build their brand, but allow them to establish some comfortability with that camera as they're moving up to the Bass Pro Tour. So I think that process of not only moving up, but once they get there, that's another part of it that they're even more prepared for, and it doesn't overwhelm them. Is there anyone outside of that top eight right now that's really impressed you this year that you've got yeah, to watch? I, yeah, Weaver, I think, is is more than due to – I mean, he is seasoned enough. He needs to clean up the consistency a little bit. Had that big win at Okeechobee this year. He would be fine on the, on the Bass Pro Tour. Uh, Michael Harlan, that kid, if he doesn't get to us this year – and, and the irony behind that, if he doesn't get to us this year, it's probably because – um, like the Ozarks. those are, yeah. yeah. The war he is just and 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 so he'll learn through that lesson. Uh, Marshall Robertson and Drew Gill, man. Marshall, I think, and Dad will self admit it. Marshall has a ability to be better than Dad, and Dad's pretty good. Dad is pretty yeah. good, and Marshall yeah. is just. And when I start hearing other anglers, I, and I'll give you for instance, I was talking to Stephen Brown a while back. He, we were talking about his son, Bo, who's over at Montevallo, and, and that team has just won the third consecutive college team of the year for three years in a row. I mean, they built a dynasty. And we're talking about Bo, and then as soon as we get through talking about Bo, but Stephen says, watch out for Marshall. He is legit. When I get Bass Pro Tour anglers talking about someone else's kid other than their own, and I not only heard that about Marshall from Stephen, but I've heard it from others, and they keep – and I'm like, what makes him special? And I get this. He's got the it factor. Well, I can't, I don't know in Webster's what it is when it pertains to fishing. But when they say it, I know what you're talking about because it normally means mature beyond years, really good instincts, uh, makes changes on a dime, never gets locked in, truly open minded. The list can go on and on. And then Drew Gill, the last couple of events, Man, you're talking about someone dialed in and forward-facing sonar. Now, he had a bomb in there. And, and I think a big part of the kids that are in that forward-facing sonar technology, uh, I've talked to Jacob at great length about this. One of the biggest keys of that technology is knowing when to turn the darn thing off. There are certain tournaments you better turn that puppy off and go fish. I think some of the younger guys, as they work through their inconsistencies, when it's a forward-facing tournament, they're going to be outstanding. When it gets to when to turn it off or at least push it to the side a little bit, they will start understanding that. I don't know if Drew or Marshall gets to us this year, but I think there are two that we need to consistently keep an eye out because they're going to get to the Bass Pro Tour at some point in time. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that some of it could be a little bit schedule-dependent, you know, if they get, if we have a year where it really lines up for one of them, at the same time, like, a lot of times, by the time a guy is good enough to make the Bass for a Tour to finish in that top eight, the schedule doesn't matter. They're just going to do it regardless, you know? And, and I think you see that with, like, you know, you see that with Gray and Villa and Stefan. Like, 
it doesn't they sure they've had some tournaments where they've been able to fish to their strengths but it's not like they've been to all these places dozens of times or anything like that you know like they were just ready bill is an interesting one because as i've got to know him and talk to him he's old brick mason up there in the richmond virginia area so yeah, I remember uh, we were at James River last year, and one of the practice days, man, he's out there putting in a foundation or doing some kind of block work because that's his job. Uh, we've yet to see how good Martin can be if he's able to dedicate full time to just fishing. I mean, he he makes his living. There's another guy from Camden, Missouri, that used to lay bricks. It worked out pretty good for him, named Denny Brower. Some might have heard of him, but Bill is just an old school blue collar guy that, that lays bricks, has a crew, you know, if he makes this next leap, is he going to have the time and the resources to be able to dedicate it to it full time? Because he's third in the AOI standings and he's maintaining two jobs. The one that pays the bills being a brick mason. And then the one that he has a passion for being a professional angler. When you get to that next level, it's hard for an angler to be successful doing two different things. You got to either be all in on the Bass Pro Tour, or the Bass Pro Tour will pass you by. Um, but he has shown us, being able to do both, that he's really good. I mean, this is the second year in a row that he's top 20 in AOI. So I know the talent's there. It's just, can he have the resources and the time to be able to dedicate to fishing exclusively the Bass Pro Tour and do the things it takes to be successful out there? Yeah, I'll be. I'll be curious to see that. He's a guy who sort of always, I won't say surprised me, because I'm to the point where I expect him to do really well, but he he seems to excel even in places you don't really think that he would. You know, he's just got a knack for figuring out how to catch him all over the place. And may, maybe that's from where, where his upbringing is. You know, Virginia... Like, if you're fishing the Tidal Rivers, and then you're also, like, fishing Smith Mountain and maybe Lake Norman, like, that's a very versatile, you know, diverse region of the country. Maybe it just means he can just always take that wherever. But I remember, I think last year, he was in the top 10 at day one on Gunnersville, And he he just seems to really catch him everywhere. Like, his first time to Champlain, he made the top 10, I think. So... I don't know. He's he's a cool guy. He's an interesting guy to watch fish. I, I'm really curious to see if he can sustain it, which I don't see any reason he can't. But just every time he goes somewhere new and keeps catching them, I'm like, huh, well, look at that. He did it again. You look, go back to his BFL days, 1919, 2020, 2021 on the Piedmont Division. That's in my neck of the woods, to your point. And normally that Fishes, that features tidal fisheries, Smith Mountain Lake, Kerr Lake, Gaston. 19, he was fourth overall in AOI in the, in the BFL in that division. 20, he was fourth again. 21, he was third. And man, it, it's any other, B, all the other BFL divisions, you win that points in your BFL, you've done something to consistently stay in the top five three years in a row. That kind of, kind of opened my eyes up to this is a guy that's in my area. That And I know how diverse our different lakes is. And then in the Toyota Series in 2021, he ran up north. And in the Northern Series, he finished sixth in that. So that showed me he can handle the smallmouth events as well. So the resume is kind of quietly being built, to your point. Um, 
And then last year in the, in the tackle warehouse invitationals, he ended up 36. And I think he was in top 20 right into the last event or two. And that fell out of it. I, I think he's there. I'm going to tell you the one I'm, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of one. And, and I know that the talent is there and I feel like it will be immediate success will be Keith Carson. Um, I think Keith has got to survive the Potomac and should do really well up in Mississippi. Uh, but I think Keith is, is one of those guys, just the, the persona, the personality, the, the calmness. You know, I love the uniqueness, the fact that him and John Cox and the others are, are sporting the tin cans uh, and they own it. That's their identity. That's who they are. That's who they're comfortable with. But I think, especially with us going back to the best five on the Bash Pro Tour, I think Carson's one that gets to us will have immediate success. I truly do believe that. Yeah, I I think he can do really well too. He's he's uh he's kind of proven himself at a lot of different locations too, and you know some of that is a bunch of that is either Bass Open success or NPFL success, which yep. you know. However you want to sort of account for that, the the fact remains he's, like, won tournaments in totally random, not, like, quote, Keith Carson places, which is kind of the same thing that John Cox does. You know, John Cox doesn't just win in Florida, right? He wins on Chickamauga. He wins on Lake of the Ozarks. He wins on Sam Rayburn. So it's, uh, he's definitely building that resume, and, you know, he probably, when you start to talk about Keith, you can't talk about him without talking about John. Uh, but man, you can really—I uh, think you can definitely project a lot for his future. Yeah. When you win an AOI, I don't care what league it is, and in 2021, that's when he won that NPFL AOI. When you win a AOI at a national level, or a points title in the Opens, or a points title in the Toyota Series. That shows me that's a pretty consistent, pretty solid angler. I don't care what the acronym is in front of it, but when you start talking about AOIs in this sport in different leagues, man, that's hard. I, that is so hard to be able to do that, and there's so few that have. So with Keith, when Keith gets to us, that that's going to be – when the guys from the Tackle Warehouse Invitation will show up now because of the ecosystem at the Bass Pro Tour, the league gets stronger. And that can be bad news for some guys on the Bass Pro Tour because it, it was hard to start out with, and now it keeps getting harder and harder and harder because of the caliber anglers that we're bringing through the Tackle Warehouse Invitationals like Keith Carson and others. No doubt. Uh, let's wrap up with Cayuga. Um, okay. I, just because, you know, I want to – we, we don't need to prognosticate about the Potomac. You know, what happens will happen. It's going to be a great tournament. We've <laughs> kind of talked our way around it a bunch. Uh, people will be able to watch it live, listen to you say a lot of things about it here this weekend. Um, but uh, Cayuga is in the books. Uh, Adrian Avina won it, which I was thrilled about. Because yeah. I have, I mean, like Avina and I came up together on the FLW tour. Like he's firmly one of my guys and to see him finally get a win like that was just I was thrilled for him and I think it's like I'm a flogger guy I I think that they're cool and fine and I like that generally speaking whoever works the hardest is who does the best in those tournaments Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so I thought it fit right in for him because he's a guy who works incredibly hard. You know, he's like, he'll fish a tournament, run guide trips into the ocean, uh, rebuild a boat, fish another tournament. Like, he just seems to freaking go, go, go. And I don't know how he does it, but, man, I was glad to see him win. I, I'm not only a fan of Adrian Navina, the fisherman, I'm a fan of Adrian Navina, the person. Uh, high character, high quality, to your point, brings the energy and effort. And and we should have seen this coming. Uh, 21st overall in AOI, five out of six knockout rounds this year, third top 10 this year. Here's where we should have seen it coming. He was eighth at Red Crest, third at Gunnersville, which is the last tournament we've had. This event right here, he passed a million-dollar mark. Uh, he's had 35 events out on the Bass Pro Tour, nine-time top tens. Uh, to your point, in this event, second day of qualifying, I remember seeing boat-to-boat footage. Rob Newell, Dave Appleton over there is covering Avena. He's already got a pretty good bag, but he's one of the few people that were down at the south end of the lake fishing for smallmouth and not fishing for the ones on the bank. Him and Wheeler... Alton Jones Jr. could probably make the case for Becker. There was a couple of guys that started flogging pretty quick, pretty early, realizing those fish that were visible in that two to three foot of water were going to receive a lot of pressure and started off early in the event and throughout practice looking for those fish in that six to 12 foot range that wasn't as easy for everybody to see with that flogger. And also to your point, man, that flogging, I don't want no part of it. None. It, it looks way too hard. When I talk to Vina at night, he's like, man, it's like having a chest day at the gym because it's constant up, down, push up, you know, sit down, operate the trolling motor, look at the fish, get smacked in the head 40 or 50 times during the day. I mean, he outworked everybody at that event. And I'll throw Avina in this category. I think right now he's just now starting to figure out how good he is he's yet he's not 33 years he's 32 years old so he's still very young in this sport the resume is continuing to build but that's another one that come to us that was good now he's gotten to the point he's really good and i think there's other layers and levels for him to uh, to attain to and and then the uniqueness of the the situation and it's well-documented of all the four guys hanging out, Wheeler, Connell, Mark Daniels Jr., and Avena. Normally when I see that many anglers hanging out, at some point in time, it just life happens and there's some kind of, I don't like the way he keeps this room clean and I don't like the way he does it, and then there's a breakup in the marriages. You and I have seen that. I've never seen a group this cohesive that has this much positive energy and, and Jody, one of the hardest things I've always said for a man to do is enjoy another man's success. Well, you look at what Connell and Wheeler has done. That group has stayed intact. Uh, and I'll throw Mark Daniels Jr. is due for a win. It was well documented of the tough streaks that we were having. Now he's made two knockout rounds in a row. Back to fishing like Mark Daniels Jr. fishes. You look for him to have a win as well. But that group in its entirety – We've had 39 events on the Bass Pro Tour. They've won 11 of them. It's pretty strong for a group. There's a lot of positive energy that comes out of there. When one of them's having a a tough run and it never lasts long, that group's pulling for them to get out. When one of them wins, 
that group is the biggest cheerleaders for the other's victory. They share information constantly away from the tournament scene. Hey, I figured this out on Ford Face and so on. You might want to try this. They're pushing each other to be better in social media. That group, that, that's back to one of these iron sharpens iron with these four. Man, they just keep making each other better and better and better. And and I don't see any end and stop. And then for Avina to win, man, that that's he represents everything that's right in the sport of bass fishing. He does. I mean, he's he still got a little bit of old school in him because he respects the past. He's got a lot of the new school in him because he's ahead in the technology. He has a great work ethic. Obviously, family means a lot to him. Um, and then he just, he represents, he does represent that younger class. I mean, he'll throw out your, one of your, he'll throw out a dude and a man and, you might even hear like one of your favorite words to just call it dope. <laughs> and it's just, if you can't, if you're not an Avena fan, you're probably not a fan of bass fishing and everything that's good. And I am, I am, I am extremely happy for him, proud of him and know that at that event, my God, he just outworked everybody. He just flat out there and wheeled himself into that win. And his next win will come a lot easier than this first win because now in the back of his mind he knows he can yeah i think the uh one thing i'll be curious to see about avena is like he he's admitted it to me like he doesn't have a one-track mind like he gets bored if he just thinks about bass fishing all the time right and wheeler doesn't get bored if he just thinks about bass fishing all the time. That's like literally his dream scenario, right? And I think a lot of a lot of fishermen who really get to that top level win AOIs, like they might think about deer hunting for like a month, but right. otherwise they think about bass fishing. And I so I'll be curious, you know, I just feel like Avina, I was really glad to see him win. I don't I don't know if like it's guaranteed he's going to go to another level because he's got so many different interests in life, you know. Like he's got a diverse, you know, set of stuff he likes to do and likes to dabble in. Yeah, but I think there's been some moments in, in tournaments where it could have been better, and there was a, a missed opportunity here or a missed opportunity there or a little bit of doubt here or there. I mean, I look back as his last season that he had last year, he finished 12th in AOI. His worst finish was 41st at Lake Fork. I mean, so that's the, to me, that's showing me the consistency is getting better. His worst finish this year is 51st at Lake Murray. And he's already made three top tens. Now his consistency is getting better. And, you know, I, I like seeing the well-rounded thing, guys, but I, I'll say this, too. Back in my day, most of us, the only reason we bass fish is so we could afford to deer hunt. <laughs> and there's very few exceptions to this rule. You better be thinking about it, not 365, but 250 days out of the year, it better be dedicated to deer hunting. And I'll give you, for instance, when you look at this top 10 list of AOI guys, there's not a guy in here that I'm going to say that doesn't hunt on occasion, but there's not a guy in that top 10 that I would tell you that is an extreme hunter. I think Andy Morgan is the only person that I can put in this rule of 
he can hunt a lot and fish a lot and do them all really well. Most of the guys that hunt a lot don't fish enough. And now with our younger anglers coming in, man, time on the water equals success. And you show me an angler that's having a bad run, I'll show you an, a long, sustainable bad run. I'll show you an angler that's not putting in the time on the water that the young anglers are. Yeah, and it might not be on time on the water you see. I mean, we just talked about Dakota, who is sneaking off to Sandusky, <laughs> or not Sandusky, Saginaw, right? Like, right. that might, that's not time on the water you necessarily think about, but it's time on the water he's putting in. And that's the, that's the long-term sustainability today on the Bass Pro Tour. There is a direct correlation between time spent on the water and success. If the only time that the anglers are spending time on the water is there two days during official practice and in their official days of competition on the Bass Pro Tour, I can tell you how that's going to end. They're going to get two days of official practice. They're going to have two days in qualifying, and they're going home. At the end of the year, they fished seven events in four days. They've got 28 days on the water. They have zero chance of having long-term sustainability. They better be on the water, as all my good ones are right now, away from the tournament scene getting better. People like Jacob and Connell and Ebear and Becker and, man, I get Ayler, Avena, all these guys are really good with forward-facing sonar. It wasn't because they put it on the boat. It's because they went out there and spent hundreds, maybe even up to thousands of hours now on the water looking at that technology, seeing where it fits into their style and where it adapts into their strategy, you, me, and everybody else out there in the world now has probably got a forward-facing sonar on their boat because of all the nonstop chatter that we've had about it. Just because you have it in your boat doesn't mean you're going to be good at it. I'll give you another analogy. Just because everybody had a flipping stick back in the day didn't mean they were as good as Denny Brower with a flipping stick. You have got to spend time on the water getting better at your skill sets from top to bottom. And my anglers on the Bass Pro Tour that are having sustained tough runs, I promise you, I know it for a fact, because of family, because of life, because of whatever, they have not put the emphasis on time on the water away from the tournament scene as these young anglers have, and it shows up week in and week out on the results on the page of the score tracker. Hmm. What a... Did anything else interest you about Cayuga? Obviously, it was it was an incredible event from like a sort of fish size standpoint, but there was also there were enough fish that we know were recaught that it was kind of it was it just felt a little bit odd to watch. I know it's better to catch them and let them go and have them go back to the bed. Like I'm not arguing that, but yep. there's just something that doesn't sit like fully right with my heart for like the same fish to count for different guys over different days. And I just, I don't know what, what, what did that event feel like to you? What, what storylines kind of tripped your trigger there? Yeah, they, they, we're going to come out of that event. Um, one it, historical, uh, because of the size of how many anglers we have, if it had been a cumulative four day broke the hundred pound mark, I believe we had six overall. And we would have had even more because in the qualifying knockout round, some of these guys, oh, plenty guys laid up. All- um, so it will be historical. Uh, I kind of saw this coming. I even sent out an email back in August to some of the management going, Hey, we're going to have repetitive fish caught off the bed. 
we might want to consider a separate lake. I think a, an additional lake for knockout round and championship round, especially when we're in the Finger Lake region, would have been fitting in that. And you're right. I, I can. It got to the point by knockout round, championship round, me and JT could hit our, our talk back button to our producers, and we've seen a fish being caught by X angler. We could tell them to wait. And they're like, how do you know that? Because angler Y caught that fish 15 <laughs> minutes ago. I mean, I didn't realize how many times in smallmouth would bite on the bed. And I learned a lot at that event. Kevin and, and, and Wheeler and Becker and others taught me a lot in the fact that the majority of those fish we caught were males uh, because the females, the bigger females will come up during night and they've only got about a three to eight hour window where they'll come up there. So the majority of those fish were caught were male. Um, smallmouth, unlike largemouth on the bed, largemouth normally chase things off barely rarely they will kill things but not often eat things smallmouth will not only chase things off but as they're chasing gobies perch whatever they chase and eat it so they're continuously eating and they're hyper super super aggressive um i think we're going to come out of here and there's going to be even uh additional rule changes rule adjustments rule rewording uh, we'll probably see a lot of that at the St. Clair event. Not to say anybody broke any rules. That's up for Daniel Fennel and the tournament department to direct on that. But I think it, a couple instances it was pushed to the limit as far as what's a sight fish, what's not a sight fish. Was that fish caught by Angler X and then recaught the same day, which is against the rules. Uh, angler was allowed on a sight fish to be able to weigh that fish in. And then other anglers could weigh it in, but that angler could not go back and fish for it. So, I think we're going to get some rules clarification out of this. The other thing that, that I, I will leave completely baffled, before this tournament started when I was making my calls to all the anglers, um, they were talking about all the largemouth that were coming to the bank and absolutely flooding the bank, seeing hundreds of at a time in that four- to six-pound range. And because of a wind shift, a weather shift, whatever they were there for the first day or two but they left they left the bank and not only did they leave the bank when i watched anglers in that four to eight foot depth range out in the grass flats they never could find those schools of largemouth and when i say schools of largemouth jared Littner explained it very well to me he said marty i had one day where they come in they be in the largemouth and there were so many fish up and in those areas that the bottom was moving that's smallmouthish type school. Okay, they come in, something changed the first two days. Those fish never re got relocated. That lake is now going to be thought of as a smallmouth dominate lake, and that's the wrong thought process. That lake is still 70% largemouth. And I guarantee you, in the next week or three, you can go back to that lake, and the smallmouth are going to be the few that are there that got caught multiple times. They're pretty much done. And then you go back to the largemouth. Man, they didn't play. They didn't factor. And there's more bigger largemouth in that lake than there is smallmouth. No matter what anybody says, I talked to too many anglers and their things are practicing that talked about the largemouth. And then my last takeaway of this, and this is something that Kevin himself educated me on, and I never realized this. We talk about gobies all the time and how they – are predators to smallmouth on the beds. And Kevin made mention, he's like, there's not a high population of smallmouth on the beds here because there's not a high population of smallmouth in this lake. 
but the few that are here get great big. And the reason there's not a lot of smallmouth, the majority of smallmouth spawn in and around rocks. And that's where gobies live. And he said, anywhere you've got rocks and you've got gobies, you're going to have giant smallmouth, but not as many because the gobies will eat the eggs or eat the fry. But they grow extremely big. He said, but on lakes that have sand, a.k.a. St. Clair, Clair, you don't have gobies, but you have a huge population of smallmouth. Erie, words on the street, and everybody knows it, population of fish is on the downtrend. The size of the fish is on the uptrend, a.k.a. gobies. You look at St. Clair, one of the biggest population of fish that we've ever had, no gobies, L.Y., perch, other things as well. And the lack of gobies, it allows that particular population of fish to explode. So there was a lot of interesting things I've learned, but long answer to a short question. Historical? Yes. Um, and it was, it was fascinating to watch as the anglers used the strategy. And that's what made me appreciate what Avina did. I know for a fact in his knockout round, he had three fish at weight 6'2". And there was a little bit of doubt cast with that. But I watched him from start to finish. I have the ability on our GPS tracking system to not only see where he's at, but see where he's at when he catches each and every fish. He caught completely different fish. All three of those six twos were completely different fish. And during the event, him and Wheeler both laid off the temptation to go up on the bank and catch the same fish multiple times. Both of them had moments they went to the bank, but the majority of their time was spent out in deeper water. And those deeper fish seemed to be more consistent in the fact that you could make them bite easier, quicker, but you couldn't recycle multiple days. And they either continued their process to the bank or either spawned and did what they needed to do and got the heck out of there completely. But they were continuously having to find new and fresh fish. So, man... First and foremost, what a fishery. Uh, yeah, there was that little bit of, but we knew it. We knew it going in. And, and I'll add this. With our format, if we would have had a catch, put in a live well, go away and release, the smallmouth fishing would have been done after day two. Yeah, it would not have been a smallmouth derby. I, no, it would, have been a, it would have been a pretty rough tournament overall. Because the largemouth just went MIA basically after day two. We didn't have nobody in the top ten, and only Marty Robson come close. I think he finished 13th or 14th. He was the highest finishing guy with the largemouth. So if we would have done catch, weigh, catch, put in a live well, weigh, and release, man, this lake would not have looked as good as it looked. And... I think it took me three days before I saw an angler put a under three pound smallmouth on the scales. The few smallmouth that live in that place, they're incredible. They're absolutely incredible. And I've never known a fish to be that mean. Man, they would bite when they're on the bed, and they bit. Yeah, no, that that definitely. It was amazing the big fish guys were catching, but it was very. It was a lot of BPT tournaments are very unique, right? Where yep. you have, whether it was with the old format when you guys had to catch a lot of fish, or in this format now where, you know, the same smallmouth could last for multiple days, like, it really 
it seems like you just run into a lot of scenarios where unprecedented things happen, <laughs> um, which is kind of cool. And it was just one of those times where it's like, this is the weirdest tournament that I've ever watched. Uh, at the same time, gosh, I really like watching Van Dam be on top in a smallmouth tournament. I know he didn't win, but like, it's it's beautiful. Like, I I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and when you have Kevin, he caught twenty eight oh one his first day of competition. So let's put this in perspective. So let's let's really focus on the good here. When you had Kevin catch 28-1 in his qualifying round, and I talked to him after the event, he said that was the best five-bag in the national competition of smallmouth that he'd ever caught. You're talking about an angler that's fished over 400 events, and in, in his his historical presence in the sport, and especially in the northern fisheries as well, is, is unmatched. And for him to say that was the best five, and, and none of those fish were recycled. That yeah. was his first day of qualifying, He's there. And then you look at what Jacob and Avina do in the a knockout round. Both of them are in the 28-29 pound round. And when I talked to Avina, I asked him, I said, is that your best five smallmouth you've ever caught? He said, Marty, that's my best five of anything I've ever caught. And so you got guys that left a smallmouth fishery catching the biggest five bag they've ever caught in their tournament career. And you're talking about a lot of anglers that have fished a lot of events. That was pretty amazing. But again, I go back to our format. The good is our catch, weigh, and release. Without that, we would have never showcased the quality and quantity of smallmouth that live in Cayuga. Dustin Connell kind of opened everybody's eyes to it, but Dustin won on the Every Fish Counts format. Then we went to the best five, and then it was dominated that week by smallmouth. But the largemouth disappearing going to MIA, that, that was one I look back and I still don't have a clue. And there's a lot of anglers that drove home after that event that saw what they saw going, man, this is going to be lights out. I heard a lot of anglers when I talked to prior to the event said, I didn't think catching 30 to 32 pounds was going to be an issue with the largemouth. There were so many and so big. And that never come to fruition. Did the uh, did the water temperature drop or something like that? Like, do we know what the con- the conditional factors were? Because I I've noticed I feel like spring in the north is great, but it, it's also one of the few times where the fish can get kind of funky on you up north. And a lot of times, summertime, fall, they just keep biting. But spring can be weird sometimes. Yeah, and when I, Ayler did the best job of explaining it to me than anybody. He would sit his boat down during practice, and he'd be in a section of the lake to be 62 to 65 degrees. He'd move 1,000 yards, and it would be 50 degrees. He'd move another 1,000 yards, it'd be 45 degrees. And that lake's 400-plus feet deep. And when the wind starts swirling, it, it's there's current involved in that lake, and it's got a, a long run of 41 miles. So you get a north wind, you get a south wind out of that, you got the ability to push some warm water into an area and bring more fish to it. And then you got the ability to be able to put some extremely cold water in an area that had warm water where a lot of fish have moved. And, and I've always said water temp is probably the least important thing in fishing. I truly do believe that. But here's one thing I know for a fact. There has to be a, 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 a preface to that statement. Fish are not affected by water temp as much as we think. I've had seen some of the 
biggest catches I've ever seen in 42 to 45 degree. And I've seen monster catches in that 75 to 85 degree. But the one thing I've learned over my years of fishing and especially at the desk watching fish do not, whether it's Northern, Southern, Florida, Texas, or California, bass do not, no matter the species, appreciate or enjoy significant water changes in a quick time period. So all that largemouth water that was 62 to 65 degrees, you get a wind shift or current shift, and the next thing you know, all that water in there is 50 degrees. They're out. They're extreme quick water changes in temp. That kills them quicker than muddy water. They're done. And I don't know where they went to, nor do the anglers. I mean, obviously, they would go back out to that first grass line. I saw a lot of anglers go from the bank to the first grass line. They weren't. Then I watched them go to the deeper grass line. That's where they should be. And they never really reconnected with those fish. It, that, that's the unknown on that lake that just completely caught me off guard as well as a lot of other anglers. And it just never showed back up. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a there's an ABA at Cayuga on Saturday, um, and it's kind of cool and rainy most of this week. Uh, but anyway, I'll be really curious to see what happens in that one. I got a half dozen buddies who are going to be out there for it while I'm at the Potomac, and uh, I am definitely going to be making some calls afterwards just to figure out what the uh, what the situation is because I know a lot of them are bringing their floggers. <laughs> uh, but we'll see. Twenty eight fifteen will be the winning weight, and it will be one on largemouth. Write okay. it down. I like it. 15, it'll be one large mouth. There we go. I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb right there. I mean, it sounds good to me. I like the I like the largemouth call. Like, there's a lot of big ones there. I don't feel like they've all spawned already. It seemed like a lot of them were super fat. Like, you ought to be able to wacky rig up a big bag, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, and a one-day event like that, I mean, the largemouth, the first two days of our event was what was big fish each and every day. And then as the field and as the word got out that the smallmouth become more and more of a player in that event as well, too. That, you know, we go to these northern fisheries and we're going to be there before the actual possession of fish takes place. You know, the, the limit to be able to possess fish on that, like I think it's June 15, where you can catch, possess, and then go away. I think it's imperative that we look back and go, you know what? We probably need multiple lakes. Even the catch, weigh, and release can put a could put a little bit of strain on some of these spawning fish, but let's share the love and also let's show off some other good lakes. I mean, that that area in itself is just incredible. We've done some cups in and around additional lakes, and it's the the Erie's, the St. Lawrence, uh, all those waterways up and around there, Anida, all of them getting the national exposure. But, man, those Finger Lakes, they're under pressure, tremendous population of fish, one of the prettiest areas I've ever been to in the country. One of my top three favorite places to go to in the fall. It's just insane. Your your area, Vermont, and that area there, that gets the love as it should. But I think the Finger Lake sort of gets overlooked and not remembered. And it's not only Cayuga. There's some other really good lakes in and around that area. Oh, yeah. I mean, dude, in pre before practice started, Sheffield caught a 32-pound bag at Seneca. Which is like right next door. <laughs> I mean, they're, I they're amazing. Yeah, I, I, I think that one would have shown really well too. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, Canisius. Guys catch big ones out of Cuca. People catch big ones out of all. Like every one of those ones 
you can find somebody who's like, oh yeah, it's got the biggest fish in the state in it. So I yeah. I think that they're definitely underrated. Um, yeah, and I and, and just incredible areas, just beautiful, yeah. beautiful areas. Uh, upstate New York, Central New York, man, that's just as you say, that's dope. It is. Yeah, it's it's top notch. I I still think that Champlain and the St. Lawrence, just as far as you know natural beauty goes, I don't think you can beat them. Uh, but the fishing in central New York is really, 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 really good. Yeah, yeah. If you made a um, trip and you had a seven-day period or a two-week period and you went to all those lakes, you wouldn't regret a day or decision. No, you'd have the best trip of your life, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, good deal. Well, I tell you what, Marty, I feel like we have covered a lot of ground. Uh, we've been on the phone for over an hour and a half now, which is all good by me, but also we've got things to do. <laughs> um, but uh, if you have anything else, I'm all ears. But otherwise, I say we call it a day and uh, get some other stuff done. Man, I'm good. It's going to be an exciting end of the year to Tackle Warehouse Invitational. We're going to bring eight great anglers to the Bass Pro Tour. The Bass Pro Tour, that AOI race, is going to be epic. It's going to be epic. There is going to be a Hall of Famer or a future Hall of Famer win that race. The kids are breathing down Ott's neck, and, and Ott's still youthful in age as well. Um, I think we've only got a few events left, but I think we've got some really good events left, and it's going to be fun to watch. And, man, first and foremost, thank you for all you do. Thank you for taking the time to do these podcasts and everything else that you do for the Major League Fishing World. You're second to none, buddy. I'm always a fan. Well, Marty, thanks as always. And uh, I... Uh... I won't be watching a lot of live at the Potomac. I'll just be there. But I will be watching a lot of live at St. Clair and a lot of live at Saginaw because those are going to be two epic events to finish the season, I think. Right on. See you soon, man. Good luck. All right. Thanks, Marty. See ya.